0: This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com slash historyfiles to start your free trial membership. the human mind, Many, many years ago. Building of human rights.
1: The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communications. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 68 of The History Files, coming to you from the first week of September 2016, where fall is pretty much here, along with the first of many rainy days. We have some fun episodes coming up in the near future, with the new Magnificent Seven, Westworld, and the World War I incarnation of Battlefield video game franchise. Not sure if we'll be talking about any or all of them here or on Gordon's Gun Closet, but we will definitely be covering them one way or another. In the meantime today we're going to do a kind of a five-part show and it all starts in the 15th century. But before we get into all that let's take a look at what's going on currently in various media.
0: This is Hollywood, porting cast a thousand. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. Got a couple of books for you today. First up, uh, we talked about some alt-history a few episodes ago when we had John Longenbaugh on, and uh, the books I have today are definitely alt-history. The first one is Shades of Milk and Honey by Mary Robinette Kowal. It's kind of picture Jane Austen with magic. I think there are four books in the series now. They're really good. Shades of Milk and Honey is the first one. It's I can't recommend it highly enough. They're lots and lots of fun. Uh, And the second one is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke. It's a standalone. came out a few years ago. It's amazing. Uh, It's another uh, sort of Regency thing. This takes place during the Napoleonic Wars. And again, it's England. And in this case, there was magic, but the magic went away. But these two new magicians, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, work to bring magic back to England and it's kind of a picture it's like Harry Potter meets Amadeus kind of thing where it's it's this is like Harry Potter for grown-ups it's really really good and the BBC recently made a mini-series out of it which I finished the other night by the same title Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell it's on Netflix so if you have Netflix you can watch it and it is amazing. I there are the costume design, the costume and hair and the sets and everything. It is so wonderful. It puts a lot of Jane Austen movies to shame. It just they really do a really nice job and then the magical elements are done so well. It's just you can do anything these days and I highly highly recommend it. So that's what we have this week for media.
1: There's no zombies?
0: No zo well, I'm not gonna say nothing. There might be zombies, but it's a small ah, thing. Ah, well.
1: Anyway. Jane Austen.
0: Yeah. Oh, zombies. oh, I see where you went with that. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what—that uh, Pride and Prejudice in zombies. Tried to read it, couldn't get into it. Sorry, not gonna recommend it. <laughs> no zombies. Oh well. Yeah. Well,
1: What's zom- the use? zombies
0: are kind of overdone, in my opinion. But that's just me. Moving on got a movie to throw out too, which uh, is, has sort of tangentially related to some of the things we're going to be talking about today. And this is one of my favorite movies ever. And that is The Adventures of Baron von Munchausen, uh, directed by Terry Gilliam. It's from 1989, stars wonderful people, Sir John Neville in the titular role. It has a very, very young Uma Thurman. Uh, Oliver Reed is in there. Uh, Eric Idle. Everybody is in this movie. It's wonderful. Jonathan Pryce. Uh, lots of fun cameos. It uh, is loosely based on the stories of the adventures of Baron von Munchausen. And I don't. I'll have to put off. I'll, I'll put a link into that for that uh, book too. It's a. I think it was written in the 18th century. Yeah. And, and uh, it's so. um, it's where we get the term Munchausen syndrome or Munchausen by proxy syndrome. Baron von Munchausen told a lot of tall tales, and he was a great promoter of himself. He and, had a very
1: vivid imagination.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a fabulous, it's perfect material for Terry Gilliam, and the setting is is this this uh, city this. Um, napoleonic wars era city which Actually, is 18th century well it's that's true it is it is 18th century i'm just i because once you get into the fantasy world the costuming and the wardrobe is kind of gets pushed a little bit later oh, in, yeah. in time periods but that's okay yeah it is late late 18th century it's under siege by the turks this the turkish okay. army laying siege to this town it figures prominently in the setting of the story and you think well that's kind of fantastical well maybe not so much
1: not at all because the the turks weren't really ejected from the balkans until <laughs> effectively the eve of world war one yeah. and uh they and they still i mean constantinople istanbul is in europe
0: mm-hmm. so uh if you have never seen this movie i highly recommend it it's great for the whole family it's a visual delight. It's it's Terry Gilliam at his his wackiest and most developed, I think. It's really, really wonderful. Lots of fun. The Adventures of Baron von Munchausen. And it is on streaming on Amazon. It's not on Netflix and it's not on Prime, unfortunately. But your library probably has it and if you're willing to shuck out a couple of bucks you can see it on Amazon. Yesterday lives again.
1: main topic today is an amalgamation that I don't think anyone else has really put together, at least not the, in this sort of a format, and that is the five events of the 1450s that shaped world history. I think most people who have any interest in history are aware of most of these events, but a couple of them are a bit more obscure. At any rate, all five of them had, a, had some long-term effects which can be seen to this day. For the for this reason, I think they're important to discuss, especially in the context of how they relate to each other. These five big events are the end of the Hundred Years' War between England and France, the switch in China from taxes paid in kind to taxes paid in silver, the fall of Constantinople to the Turks, the legalization, in parentheses, of slavery by Pope Nicholas V, and finally the introduction of the movable-type press by Johannes Gutenberg. Again, most of these things, most of these are things that people have some inkling of, but again, a couple of them people probably haven't really heard of, or at least considered as important. But they're all important, and all in very different ways. Some took effect immediately, while it took over a century for others to begin to be felt. But all of them have reverberations that we still feel to this day, even in our everyday lives. And that is why I believe it's important to talk about them. The first important event from the 1450s is the end of the Hundred Years War. It may not really seem like much, as it left both England and France pretty well exhausted, and the English almost immediately set about feuding among among themselves with the War of the Roses. If you've watched Game of Thrones, which is strongly based on the War of the Roses right down to the thinly altered names, you have at least some idea of the deviousness of the participants. Call it a civil war among the English ruling class, if you will, but it took several generations to resolve, and frankly the reverberations of just the War of the Roses went on until the end of the reign of Elizabeth I. The story of the end of the Hundred Years War is actually fairly simple. Most people have heard of Joan of Arc. Her encouragement of a patriotic movement in France helped the French crown to successfully resist the English who were dominating large portions of western France. This also helped the French crown combat the Burgundians who were rightly also french but due to a lot of foolish backstabbing and literally front stabbing by the kings of france and their minions the dukes of burgundy were set irrevocably against the french crown we can see some of the results of this split in belgium a land where both french and flemish speakers reside and also with alsace and lorraine one of the main causes of world war 1 but more the more proximate reason for the end of the Hundred Years' War was a change in both military technology employed by the French crown, but also as a concurrent change in tactics, which allowed the military technology that I mentioned to become the dominant and victorious force in French military circles for centuries. The story of the Hundred Years' War is, at least for the most part, one of small English armies raiding through France, merrily raping, burning, and pillaging their way across the landscape. When finally cornered by a massive French army, sometimes actually led personally by the king, the English themselves set up defensive positions to await the inevitable attack by the flower of the French chivalry, In other words, the English suckered the French into a frontal assault on unfavorable ground, usually a sure recipe for disaster. And it was. The English, having learned from their wars against the Welsh and the Scots in the 13th and early 14th centuries, had recruited large numbers of Welsh and later English archers into their ranks of their expeditionary forces to France. These archers, armed with the Welsh longbow, later called, of course, the English longbow, could shoot a cloth yard shaft, which means it's a cloth yard long, weighing upwards of 14 ounces right through the male shirts of their opponents. Now, 14 ounces, that's that's nigh on to a pound, okay? That's a lot of weight. There's a famous account of a Welsh archer shooting an English knight the arrow went through the male skirt of the knight's hauberk, then through the male chasses he wore over his thigh, through his thigh, through the other side of the chausses, through the saddle skirting, and on into the horse, killing it. Although this was done at fairly short range, this shows the potential power of the longbow. Recent experiments with longbows as well as archaeological evidence, show that longbows of upwards of 200 pounds pull were in fairly common use by professionals, and some even used heavier bows. To those of you who have never handled a bow, let me tell you that this is really a lot of power to try to control with your fingers. They even recoil, as it were, although the recoil is exactly the opposite of what you encounter with a firearm. You are actually pulled forward when you release the bowstring. And there's, there are illustrations of guys bouncing on one leg, on their lead leg, from the recoil, from getting yanked forward. At battles such as Crecy, Poitiers, and Agincourt, the English were able to encourage the French to attack them first, first with their heavy knightly cavalry, and when that failed due to a hail of arrows wounding the unprotected horses on foot. Even though by 15th century, the 15th century plate armor had become the standard for knights, being hit with a 14-ounce arrow flung at fairly high velocity and close range is going to smart. Archaeology suggests that many of the French dead at Crecy died not from wounds but from suffocation, from being squeezed by their comrades on the flanks who were recoiling from the effects of this storm of arrows. At any rate, this archery tactic was the standard English technique, and the French had nothing to counter it with other than trying to raise their own archers, the so-called Franks archers or archers, Though not a dismal failure, they weren't a sterling success either, and hiring Genovese crossbowmen didn't really work that well either. Moreover, the war became more of a succession of sieges, taking a castle here, losing a castle there, but much of the stalemate all over. Joan of Arc could keep Orleans Orleans, from falling, but as far as reversing things, that was a little more difficult to move. This is where the advance in military technology came to the attention of the king's advisors, the Bureau brothers, Jean and Gaspard. Although more brilliant administrators than soldiers, they saw that the key to capturing fortresses was artillery, and the more the better. Also, they saw that a move from the old wrought iron cannons firing stone shot to the far superior cast bronze cannons firing iron cannonballs was a technological leap which would send them well ahead of everyone else in the game. And although most of the bronze guns which the Bureau brothers developed were produced a bit too late to have a lot of effect on the Hundred Years' War, They did go on to help the French become the dominant military force in Europe for the next several hundred years. The artillery train that the Bureau brothers put together did have the marked effect of removing castle after castle from the English-held territories. Out of desperation, the English King Henry VI sent one Sir John Talbot to try to relieve the English-held city of Castillon. Jean Bureau himself seems to have set the trap. When the English force showed up in July of 1453 and tried once again in age-old fashion to encourage the brave but undisciplined French chivalry to attack them, no such thing had happened. Instead, the French artillery caused such high casualties that the English were forced to attack the French artillery position, which exposed them to... the French knightly cavalry. The French had by this time accoutred their war horses as well as themselves in plate armor and were fairly proof against most bow shot. More importantly, the English were now out in the open in this battle and were slaughtered in their turn. The French had found the key to the English puzzle. The English were now forced to admit defeat and only held on to the last of their French possessions, Calais, at the pleasure of the King of France. The importance of this was that With the ejection of the English from Continental Affairs, it forced them to focus within. Though this, of course, led to the War of the Roses, the net effect was to produce a much stronger central government under the crown than had heretofore ever been envisioned, and the Tudors took advantage of that to the limit. The French, too, were now able to focus inward for a while, and they too strengthened the central government under the crown. In both cases, they made what has come to be the very model of the modern nation-state, which became the blueprint for most countries for the next several hundred years. And if the independence movements in Scotland and Catalonia are any indication, will remain the blueprint for several hundred more years to come. The second of these events of the 1450s, which had long-term effects, was the introduction of the demand for taxes in China to be paid in silver, rather than in kind, as they had been for millennia. What this meant is that rather than being able to pay one's taxes if, say, one raised ducks in ducks, or if one raised millet in millet, It was now that producers had to become part of the market economy and acquire silver to pay their taxes. The primary reason for this, as far as I can tell, is that the Chinese bureaucracy decided it was far less likely for a tax farmer to be able to cheat the state if he were collecting silver coins and having to account for them, rather than collecting goods. Silver, being fairly portable, was also much easier to transport to the various provincial capitals and, of course, thence to the imperial capital of Beijing. It didn't happen all at once, but the primary move seems to have been, from what I understand, in the 1450s. While not having a huge effect on things in China, other than to force more people into the market economy in order to acquire the silver, what it did for the rest of the world was to turn China into a huge vacuum for silver. It led to an inflation of the value of silver and of course a deflation in the value of other things in the process. While these effects were fairly noticeable at the time, what was really telling came to fruition just shy of a century later. In the course of the 1540s, huge silver deposits in Spanish America were discovered. The mines of Zacatecas in Mexico, opened by Cristobal Oñate, and the veritable mountain of silver, discovered at San Luis Potosí in Peru, provided China with all the silver it would need over the course of the next 250 years. Spanish treasure ships, while most often spoken of as heading for Spain, were far more profitably sent to the Spanish city of Manila in the Philippines. Or Chinese traders would arrive and sell the luxuries of the Orient to Spanish merchants for milled silver dollars or pieces of eight. The Spanish real became the standard world currency for the next 300 years and anyone trading into China had to have real reals to do business or they wouldn't be doing much business. What this did was to provide the Spanish crown with a huge profit. This paid for the Spanish Empire and the New World until the early 19th century, or when the price which the Spaniards could produce the silver for began to equal what the Chinese would pay for it. Thus the price of empire, the open market in silver. For those who are interested, Dr. Dennis Flynn of the University of the Pacific, my alma mater, has some great books on this subject, And it's from him that I gained this perspective on international relations and the growth and death of empires. The third in our list is the fall of Constantinople to the Turks in 1453. As most of you know, Constantinople was founded in the 4th century AD by the Roman emperor Constantine and became the capital of the Eastern Empire for Rome. Eventually, with the fall of Rome itself and the western half of the empire, Constantinople became the capital of what remained of the Roman Empire. Thoroughly Greek rather than Latin, it withstood attacks of Germans, Slavs, Bulgars, Persians, Saracens, and pretty much everything else you can think of, including the Christians during the Fourth Crusade. But even though enduring for over a thousand years, the power of Byzantium, which is its older Greek name, waxed and waned, and by the 1400s was definitely on the way out. The Ottoman Turks had conquered most of the Balkans by this point, not giving them up for another 400 years, and effectively had Constantinople surrounded. However, with its great fleet and the strength of its walls, it held. Constantinople was important to Western Europe for two main reasons. The first was it was the main bulwark against the Turks and other Muslims who would invade Europe across the Bosphorus. Even though the Turks were well ensconced throughout the Balkans by this point, they still had to worry about their communications across that waterway, the major strong point within their territories. But perhaps more importantly, probably was more important, Constantinople was the western end of the Silk Road, the highway for luxuries of the East. Silks and spices and everything that Europeans dreamed of as marvelous came from China, Japan, Indian, and environs. And for the most part, the main funnel for these goods was Constantinople. Mehmed II, Sultan of the Ottoman Turks, was by all accounts brilliant. He was one of a line of nine brilliant leaders of the Ottoman dynasty, something absolutely unheard of in any other ruling house, and the main reason for their successful empire, which outlasted their brilliant leadership by a good 400 years. One of the things which Mehmed II excelled at was artillery. During the course of the 15th century, as we have seen in France with the Brothers Bureau, we see over and over that well-organized artillery could win wars. Though perhaps not influenced by events on the other side of Europe, Mehmet was intelligent enough to know that this was likely the key to reducing the massive walls of Constantinople. When he arrived at the gates of that city in April of 1453, the 21-year-old Mehmet was well aware that his train of artillery as it stood was inadequate to reduce the walls, which after all had had over a thousand years to be perfected in its defenses. He sent out his officers to scour the empire for the raw materials in the form of Christian church bells and brought them to his camp. He had an advisor named Urban, who some claim was Hungarian, others posit other origins, German, whatever. But he was definitely as brilliant an engineer as Mehmet was an administrator. He built the molds for at least one enormous cannon on the spot. The reports of the day claimed that eventually some 37 tons of metal were put into the forges and that it took days for the metal to cool sufficiently so that the iron bands surrounding the molds be removed. A total of 13 guns were made either there or in Adrianople and then transported. Another similar gun cast 14 years later is now in the British Museum. It is 17 feet long with a bore diameter of 26 inches and will throw an 800 pound stone projectile over a mile. We know this because some British officers did it. (laughs) They shot the thing across the Bosphorus. (laughs) just to test it in the 18th century. With artillery like this, Mehmet was able to reduce the walls of Constantinople to rubble in a matter of days, even if such large guns were only able to get off a few shots a day. That was all he needed. Of interest is that the guns were cast in two pieces with a threaded breech between them cast right in. I mean, you basically had to screw it together. Uh, because they were so huge. The technological ability of this casting technique is absolutely amazing. At any rate, the fall of Constantinople came as an enormous shock to the West. Though there had been bickering between the Roman and Orthodox branches of Christendom, it was just assumed that Constantinople would always be there and always be, well, Constantinople. But now, with it gone, the road was wide open for the Turkish invasion of Europe, which was now begun in earnest and only ended when the last siege of Vienna was broken in 1684. Basically, not that long ago. That's only 300 and some odd years ago. This of course ended the Silk Road and the West was forced to look to other avenues to gain access to the riches of the Orients. Uh, Two of the countries, both on the Iberian Peninsula and extended well out into the Atlantic Ocean, which wanted to take advantage of this, were Portugal and Spain. They took advantage of that position and they kept that advantage for the next several hundred years. The fourth item on our list is the Papal Bull, or actually two different ones, issued by Pope Nicholas V, which effectively re-legalized slavery by Christians. This is actually two papal bulls, one from 1454 and one from 1455, which were proclamations by the Pope to reinforce the Portuguese monopoly on trade in Africa against Castile. Castile was claiming to have the right of all things in north africa by right of their visigothic inheritance portugal claimed it by right of conquest the insertion of the right to buy and sell black african slaves seems to be almost an afterthought but it certainly seems to me that the portuguese were already involved in the arab slave trade from their own explorations down the coast of africa and that they wanted to legalize this trade, which had been frowned upon by Christians for the past several hundred years. The thing here was that the main point was that the slavery would be legalized only if that slave, being either a pagan or a Muslim, was Christianized in the process. That was the proviso. Well, that didn't last a whole long time. This is one of those seemingly minor concessions, which on the surface don't seem as though they will amount to much. In practice, however, it produced this vast, forced immigration of millions of sub-Saharan Africans to the New World to provide the muscle necessary to turn the land from being something productive in the view of Native Americans into something productive in the minds of Europeans, something quite different indeed. The reason for the slave trade between Africa and the Americas was due to one thing disease. The old world diseases wreaked havoc among Native Americans, who for the most part had few, if any, immunities to such old world diseases as smallpox, influenza, various plagues, you name it. Because of this, they died in droves. It is estimated by some historians that up to 90% of the Native American population died due to the diseases brought incidentally by the Europeans. This was, in fact, a major reason for the fairly easy subjugation of the American continents by said Europeans. Had the Native Americans been sufficiently healthy, colonizing difficulties may well have been insurmountable or at least more on par with the European experiences in Southern Africa, where Europe did in fact build colonies, but which have proven to be in all probability somewhat short-lived. The Europeans would have far preferred to enslave the Native Americans into forced labor. And in point of fact, they did so in the Spanish, uh, in their early Caribbean colonies. However, between disease and overwork, Rather than successfully producing the cornucopia of food and gold, which the Spaniards had expected, uh, they simply died. By the early 16th century, the Spaniards, and of course the Portuguese in Brazil, required labor for their colony building. Of course, they weren't going to provide it for themselves, for as contemporary Spanish critics complained, every Spaniard who arrived in the new world thought himself a gentleman, and therefore above physical labor. What was needed was a labor source immune to the European diseases which destroyed the native Indian populations with the added bonus of being used used to the heat uh, of tropical climates. Unfortunately for the Africans, they fit this bill to a T. We all know the results of this, the horrors of the Middle Passage for slaves shipped from West Africa to the Caribbean or South America to die from overwork or from diseases which, although they may have been granted some natural immunities to, would take the foothold in these people's emaciated and overworked bodies. The Caribbean and Brazil were especially horrifying for slaves as the sugar plantations produced such fast riches for their owners that it was cost effective simply to work their slaves to death, which they did. I'd also like to point out a couple of interesting facts here though, while on the subject. One of the Sub-Saharan slaves, pardon me, of the Sub-Saharan slaves exported out of Africa, some four out of five who were sent to the New World were men to be used and abused as a source of labor. However, at the same time, four out of five slaves sent at the same time to the Arabian Peninsula and other parts of the Middle East were women. I'll let you use your imagination there. Likewise, of all the millions of people sent in chains to the New World from Africa, only some 4% of them were sent to the English colonies which became the United States. This gives you just a bit of an idea as to just how many people were sent to the New World sugar plantations to die there. Also, it reminds us as to why most Caribbean nations are primarily populated by the descendants of slaves. There were few Europeans and virtually no Native Americans left to infuse their bloodlines into the general population. Arguably, the most important of these developments that I want to talk about today, although perhaps only slightly, is the introduction by Johannes Gutenberg of the movable type press. Although he seems to have managed to actually begin printing things with his invention in the 1440s, It was the printing of his famous Bible in 1455 which set in motion the communications revolution which we are still seeing today. The movable type press was actually invented several centuries before in Asia, as we know that the Koreans were using them long before Gutenberg did, but it is possible that he came up with the idea independently whatever the reasons, what he did was to drastically reduce the time, labor, and therefore expense of producing written works, be they pamphlets or whole books. And that the first major work produced was the Bible says something as to where the first major focus of this revolution was going to be. I want to point out here that every single book Pamphlet, whatever produced before this, was written by hand. Books were expensive because some monk had to sit there and copy it out from another one. That's why you have all the, you know, illustrations of scribes and stuff, and that's why books were so brilliantly illuminated. Why not? It's not going to make it that more much more expensive. Some saw it as their, you know writing the thing
0: well, each book was a treasure each book was a one-off work of art
1: absolutely and,
0: and you can see it. I mean you look at the covers just the covers of some of these books encrusted with jewels I mean these were for kings and, and mm-hmm. other wealthy people but there was a lot of care put into these things they were carefully bound and kept in Boxes and you know were
1: chained to uh, to their shelves Mm -hmm. because they were so hideously expensive.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's
1: why people weren't terribly literate. Not much to read.
0: Yeah.
1: So, along with the Bibles, the presses also were used to produce papal indulgences, and between the two, we are led inexorably to Martin Luther, several generations later.
0: Why don't you stop and explain what an indulgence is?
1: A papal indulgence. Well, gee, this is a great... This is a nice rabbit hole to go down. Uh, In the course of the papacy, delving into the Renaissance and uh, building marvelous structures such as the Sistine Chapel and whatnot, and hiring artists such as Michelangelo and Raphael, et cetera, et cetera... Um, that incurred a whole lot of expense. And in order to pay these expenses, some brilliant priest came up with the idea that, hey, it's really expensive to go on a pilgrimage to, you know, to absolve yourself of sins. Because that was a standard way of doing it. You would, if you had well, sinned.
0: not maybe not necessarily to absolve yourself of sin, but it gets you extra jewels in your crown in heaven or whatever.
1: Right. But a lot of it was, you know, good works, things like that to absolve yourself of sins. And some brilliant person said, hey, instead of them going on this expensive and dangerous trip, why don't we just have them give us the money and we will hand them a piece of paper that says they're now absolved of their sins. And obviously, we're going to make it good with God.
0: Well, also, Somehow. weren't indulgences, I mean, basically, you, you could buy forgiveness.
1: Well, that's exactly what it is. And, and You're the, buying forgiveness. Right. You're and buying it, the indulgence.
0: Nothing to do with pilgrimage in some cases. I mean, it's like no, I'm no. buying your way out of purgatory, basically. Right.
1: But you could go on a pilgrimage to do this, sure. to buy your way out of, out of purgatory, or you could give the Pope money, and he would give you a certificate that said that you had done that. Mm-hmm. And that's what an indulgence was. You had to pay money. And the Pope would then absolve you of this sin.
0: What a racket.
1: That's exactly what it was. And that's exactly what Martin Luther thought.
0: Well, yeah, because Martin Luther actually read the scriptures. He was like, they made this up out of whole cloth. This has nothing to do with reality. Well, exactly. And in
1: his indignation at the selling of papal indulgences to the ignorant German peasants by this other priest, Johann Tetzel... Uh, In doing so, Luther produced his famous 95 Theses, uh, and on October 31st of 1517, pounded them onto the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg and ignited the Protestant Revolution. So upheavals like Luther's protest had happened before in Christian history. But the difference now was that there was a cheap and easy way to reproduce the arguments and send them throughout Christendom to everyone who could read. And of course, the literate who could read would read them to the illiterate audience. He could just stand on a wagon in a town square and read it off. And now everybody has heard it. Luther's questions, which were simply for a debate with Tetzel, were copied and distributed, and many people nodded their heads in agreement. And the die was cast. Over a thousand years of Christian unity in the West was torn asunder in the course of the next 250 years of religious wars. Furthermore, with the advent of the Protestant Revolution, the notion that every man was his own minister to God took firm root. And the only way to know the will of God was, of course, to read it for yourself. Thus, the strong push in Protestant communities towards literacy, for if you couldn't read the word of God, how could you know his will? The push for education went far beyond religion, though. The Italian Renaissance was originally only for a very small slice of society, but the Renaissance in Northern Europe found its audience in a much broader spectrum, as seen by the marvelous plays of the late Elizabethan period. Men who a century before would have hardly been able to write their own names were now writing amazing works of literature. From the next century's violence and struggles eventually rose the Enlightenment, then the Industrial Revolution, and finally, out of our own finally our own modern communications revolution in the form of the computer age. So there you have it. Five events of the 1450s which at the time seemed to be of no great significance but in the light of hindsight take on great import from the end of an exhausting war between England and France to a monetary decision in China to the horrifying demise of the remnants of the Byzantine empire the introduction of slavery to Europeans and finally the communications revolution of the movable-type press, we see the seeds of things which have come to affect each and every one of us, no matter where we live today. The nation-state, the heirs of the Spanish Empire in Latin America, and indeed the whole of the Europeanized New World, the African diaspora, and the communications revolutions are facts of life. They are the products of the events of the 1450s and will remain major factors in world history as long as there are people remaining
0: on this earth. Boy, that was quite a ride. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Show notes for this episode can be found at Sycon.fm slash thf68. And many of our episodes have supplemental entries over at Gordon's History Ramblings blog. If you enjoy this show, be sure to check out our other shows over at Psychon. We've got... Uh, Sunday morning coffee with Jeff, and Gordon and I also do another podcast called Gordon's Gun Closet, if you have an interest in firearms history or even modern firearms. We talk about just about everything over there, and that comes out every other week. We wouldn't be able to do this without your support, so if you'd like to help us out, head on over to PsyCon's Patreon page. You can find that through the website, or you can go right over to our shop at Zazzle for Bad Cat Productions I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well thank you
1: very much for joining us in uh, in this uh, sort of indulgence and some of the things that I like to research so join us again next week for another exciting adventure in the History Files
0: the History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the PsyCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at psycon.fm slash thf. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.